Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, global outrage persists after Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny died last week in an Arctic penal colony. His death and the two-year anniversary of Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine prompted the Biden administration this morning to impose more than 500 new sanctions on Russia. President Biden also repeated his call to Congress to pass the aid bill for Ukraine, which experienced a recent battlefield loss and says it's running out of ammunition. We take a closer look at U.S. efforts to curb increasing threats from Putin, who appears emboldened by our congressional stalemate. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. President Biden met with Alexei Navalny's widow and daughter, Yulia and Dasha Navalnaya, in San Francisco yesterday to offer his condolences after the Russian opposition leader and fierce critic of President Vladimir Putin died in an Arctic prison a week ago at age 47. Russian authorities who kept Navalny under harsh conditions, including solitary confinement, said he died of natural causes. Biden has said Putin is responsible, and this morning he announced more than 500 new sanctions on Russia for both Navalny's death and its ongoing war on Ukraine. Joining me for a closer look at where things stand between the U.S. and Russia on the eve of the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Catherine Stoner, Mossbacher Director and Senior Fellow at the Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies, and a professor of political science at Stanford, specializing in contemporary Russia. Professor Stoner, really glad to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Also, Max Boot is with us, a senior fellow for National Security Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and a columnist for the Washington Post. Max, really glad to have you on as well. So, Max, the Biden administration has announced sanctions against Russia today in response to Navalny's death and for its ongoing war against Ukraine. Can you tell us more about these sanctions? What's new about them? What impact do you think they'll have? 
Well, I doubt that they will have very much impact. I mean, this is merely a, an incremental expansion of the sanctions which have previously been levied on Russia since the 20, 2022 invasion of Ukraine. And of course, it raises the question of why are we imposing these sanctions now? Why didn't we impose them two years ago? But more broadly, I would say that Russia has adjusted to Western sanctions. They are biting, but they're not certainly not stopping the Russian war effort in large part because Russia is still able to export its oil principally to China, India, and Turkey. And as long as those countries continue to buy Russian oil, they are propping up the Russian state and the war effort, and therefore uh, they are uh, making sanctions much less effective than they would otherwise be. I would say that if we wanted to really hurt Russia at this point, we need to do two things. One is there's $300 billion in frozen Russian funds in the West, which could be sent to Ukraine tomorrow. That would be a, a big blow to Putin, and it would be a big boost for Ukraine. The other thing, of course, we need to do is to pass the $60 billion aid bill for Ukraine, which was passed in the Senate, which is now stalled in the House by MAGA isolationists. Now, obviously, President Biden can't do either of those two things by snapping his fingers. But if we're serious about punishing Putin for the murder of Alexei Navalny, if we're serious about showing that the civilized world will, will not put up with Russian conduct, that's what we ought to do, not impose incremental more, you know, more sanctions. And I want to dig into the dynamics of the last two things you mentioned in a bit. But I do, Catherine, want to get your view of the sanctions as well, just in terms of how much leverage you think imposing additional sanctions actually gives us. Max doesn't seem to feel that it gives us very much or will have much effect. And I know you've pointed out that Russia's economy has actually grown slightly under previous sanctions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know, it's what we can do, unfortunately. Um, sanctions are, are a blunt instrument in, in international relations, but it, they are the instrument that we have. I think Max is right that part of the problem here is that Russia has been able to pivot to the east um, to supply uh, China, India um, with not only oil, but also natural gas. So one of, one of the big things that uh, ha has happened over the last two years is that Europe has largely weaned itself, not entirely, but significantly from natural gas uh, supplied from Russia. And uh, Russia has had to go around looking for new markets. The, the biggest one, actually, the biggest, newest market has been India. Um, and, you know, India is technically a democracy. Um, and so, you know, to in order to, to actually really cut off financing to the Russian war machine, I think we have to put uh, more uh, pressure on India and other ostensibly U.S. allies. Um, to stop uh, supporting and buying um, things from Russia, India, China in particular. We have less, obviously, less leverage over. We can get into the Middle East, um, UAE, uh, Saudi Arabia. They're all still investing in, in Russia. So we think of Russia as being quite isolated um, and that the sanctions regime is, in fact, the largest that's ever in history been put uh, on any economy, especially one the size of Russia's. But um, Russia is isolated perhaps from the West, um, but not from, from the rest of the world. Mm. Though arguably Russia would be achieving more in Ukraine if it weren't for sanctions, or at least maybe more of the stronger effects will be felt later, Catherine? 
Sure, maybe. Um, <laughs> but as Max yeah. says, you know, they they have adjusted. Um, so yeah. uh, they can't. They long term, you know, this is not good. I think Janet Yellen said this this morning um, for for the Russian economy. Right, being a war based economy, yes. So they grew five point five percent their GDP last year. This year, they're they're it, it, it's. Um, uh, predicted that they'll grow probably about two and a half, two point six percent. But that's the International Monetary Fund. So they're starting to come back to where they were in 2019, which, to be honest, wasn't great. But the problem with wartime economic growth is that it, it does tend to cannibalize um, other industries within Russia. And so, you know, long, long term, uh, this isn't terrific for the Russian economy. And Putin doesn't have an infinite amount of time. The, but the only thing that's really relevant is, does he have more time than the Ukrainians? And, and that's, mm-hmm. I think, what's very worrisome at the moment. Yes. I want to turn for a moment to the news of the death of Alexei Navalny and both of your reactions to it. Matt, I know you wrote a piece about this. And I'm wondering if you could just help us understand why he was such a dangerous foe for an authoritarian ruler like Putin. What was his greatest threat? Well, Alexei Navalny was the most prominent Putin opponent. He was really the de facto leader of the Russian opposition, and he was a magnetic personality. He was somebody who was who was handsome, charismatic. He had a sense of humor. Uh, he he just had a way of drawing people towards him. In fact, he is much more uh, charismatic and much more politically gifted than Putin. And so, if there were ever a free election in Russia in the days when Navalny was still alive, I couldn't imagine Putin defeating him. But of course, that was why. You know he was such a threat to uh, to Putin, and 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 Navalny knew how to get under Putin's skin by focusing, in particular, on the huge corruption that that undergirds uh, the Putin regime. And you know Navalny got tens of millions or even more views for videos exposing, for example, how uh, Putin had allegedly built for himself this vast palace compound costing more than a trillion dollars, even though. You know, many people in Russia don't even have indoor plumbing. Um, And so, you know, these were the kinds of issues which a decade ago were mobilizing mass protests in the streets of major Russian cities against Putin. And then what we've seen in the last decade is a steady process of cracking down, which accelerated with the Russian invasion of Ukraine two years ago, which led uh, to a massive exodus of of bright young people from Russia, including many critics of, of Putin, and it led to many others mm. who protested Putin winding up in, in prison. And of course, now it's led to the murder of Alexei Navalny. And this is part of, you know, Putin converting his country from an authoritarian dictatorship to what is really a totalitarian dictatorship. And I would say it's really the most the most sweeping degree of one-man rule that Russia has seen since the days of Stalin. So this is, you know, a very disquieting development. But of course, the battle for uh, freedom goes on, and and uh, Alexei's widow, uh, Yulia Navalny, has taken up his mantle and is now uh, leading his organization, and, and and now is making herself into another outspoken foe of, of Putin. So it just shows that the spark that Navalny struck uh, cannot be entirely extinguished. But Putin is certainly doing his best. Yes. I I am wondering, Catherine, as Max said, Yulia has vowed to continue the fight, but are there opposition leaders now within Russia 
especially given the departure of bright young critics, to use Max's description, to really fill the vacuum left by Navalny there. As we know, of course, Navalny felt that he could be more effective opposing Putin within Russia, and it cost him his life. Is there a movement within Russia that, given right now the repressive nature of Putin's tactics um, and reaching a new level of repression, that that can bloom? Uh not at the moment, uh, not overtly. Um, I, I would agree mostly with what what Max says about uh, about Alexei Navalny and and uh, of course his daughter. We have a special connection at Stanford to right. to his daughter Dasha, uh, who's a senior here, um, very very brave young woman. So the other two most prominent critics of uh, Navalny are Ilya Yashin and um, and Karamuza, who's a uh, was a sort of journalist historian. Yashin is in jail for eight and a half years now in Karamuza for 25 years, um, both on extremist charges for having criticized um, the action in Ukraine, which in Russia you cannot call a war. It's, a spe- it's called the special military operation, and it's actually illegal to call it a war. One thing I would say about Navalny, he was everything Putin isn't, as, as Max said, uh, including tall. Putin is short, and Navalny was very tall and very uh, charismatic, very very funny, which is partly how he got such a following, especially among younger Russians. Um, and one of the big threats that he represented was, yes, these very slickly produced videos that have been uh, had have had apparently about 110 million individual views um, within Russia and outside of Russia. This this last one that that uh, Max mentioned, that's two parts called a palace for Putin, um, but. Uh, he was capable of bringing out hundreds of thousands of people on the streets. And initially in 2011 and 2012, people who had benefited from some of the economic growth that had occurred in, in Russia in the early 2000s um, came out on the streets, the middle class, uh, when Putin wanted to come back into the presidency um, to protest first a corrupt Duma election uh, in December 2011, and then against Putin himself in 2012 with holding up signs saying Russia against Putin. And this is the, exactly the kind of thing that Putin ha- uh, later said, we cannot have in Russia. We don't want to have Maidan protests like in Ukraine. So I think that's the real threat that uh, Navalny represented. Hmm. We're talking with Catherine Stoner, Mossbacher Director and Senior Fellow at the Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford. Max Boot, Senior Fellow for National Security Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and a columnist for the Washington Post. And we're talking with you, our listeners. What do you want to ask Max or Catherine? What's your reaction to the death of Navalny and what impact do you think it will have? How do you feel about where things stand in Ukraine? The war is now two years in. Email address forum at kqed.org. Phone number 866-733-6786. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about President Biden's announcement today that the U.S. is imposing new sanctions on Russia in response to the death last week of opposition leader Alexei Navalny and Russia's ongoing brutal war against Ukraine. The second anniversary of the invasion is tomorrow. We're talking with Catherine Stoner of the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford and a political science professor specializing in contemporary Russia, and Max Boot of the Washington Post, also senior fellow for national security studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. And we're talking with you, our listeners. What's been your reaction to the death of Navalny? How do you feel about where the war in Ukraine stands now, two years in? What threats do you think Russia poses to the U.S., to global security, the global world order. Do you think the Biden administration is doing enough to counter it? You can post on our social channels. We're at KQED Forum on X, Instagram, our digital community on Discord. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can call us at 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. Daniel writes, why didn't we impose sanctions when Navalny was imprisoned? It would have been better while he was alive. It may have even saved his life. The barn door was open and the horse is gone. Stephen writes, do you think there is any way to persuade India or Turkey to stop purchasing Russian fossil fuels? Do you think there is any way, Catherine? Well, having um, spoken, I just wrote a piece on the Global South and how they see this this uh, war on yeah. Ukraine. And India, it's interesting having talked to colleagues there and, and disturbing in that you know, their view is, look, we have a developmental program or plan for India. We have a population of over a billion people uh, now, I think, surpassing China as the biggest population in the world. And we need energy. Um, and we will take cheap energy where we can get it. And so natural gas, um, in particular oil, uh, we, we need it and Russia can supply it. Now, if you can supply it for less money to us, then we'll buy it from you. But at the moment, we're buying it from them. So this is the problem. The other problem is that India, you know, was in, it was a quote unquote neutral country during the Cold War. And it also uh, bought weaponry from the Soviet Union and then continued that for Russia. Russia is the second largest purveyor of weapons around the world. Other, and, and we here in the U.S. are number one. And once you buy a weapon system from a country, you are kind of stuck with it. Um, that, and it comes with you know, a service plan, let's put it that way, just as if you were buying a car. So they have some dependence on, on Russia that way. They also you know, uh, manufacture things based on Russian chemicals. So I think we sometimes have this picture of Russia just as a, uh, an energy supplier to the rest of the world, but it actually does far more than that, and, and India in particular has very sort of thick economic and security ties uh, with Russia. Um, Russia has to play India and China off one another a little bit as well um, with its turn to the east because they're obviously not friends. So it's so it's difficult. I mean, the other the other issue with India is its own internal politics, which are increasingly you know non democratic, and they don't want to be preached at by us. Uh, and Russia won't do that. Um, and that is the case with a lot of the global south and through the Middle East. And so Mr. Putin's been working on this for 10, 10 or 12 years. Uh, and it's not just the Biden administration, it's previous administrations as well. 
you know, we withdrew from global politics and Russia has seeped into into the cracks um, that we have left. Yes, and the war effort is being sustained. Max, could you talk about how you see the war right now, as we've heard about, you know, the five-month battle for Avdivka. Ukraine recently lost that. They're talking about the fact that they are facing ammunition deficits. And so I know you were there not that long ago in Ukraine. How do you see where things stand? Well, I think as, as General Zelushny, the previous commander of the Ukrainian military, said in the fall, the situation is basically stalemated. But it's not necessarily destined to remain a a stalemate uh, because, you know, keeping the stalemate going at the very minimum requires having enough ammunition for Ukraine to defend itself. And now it's very questionable as to whether it has that ammunition or not. And in the recent battle of Avdivka, the Russians were firing 10 or 15 artillery shells for every one that the Ukrainians were firing. Mm-hmm. And that shortage is going to become more mm-hmm. critical unless the U.S. House passes the uh, the foreign aid bill for Ukraine, uh, which has been stalled for so many months. And you, you could see shortages for Ukraine, not only at the front, but also with the air defense ammunition that it needs to defend its cities. And it was, it's kind of, it was kind of astonishing for me to see, and very impressive to see going around Ukraine. And I went around the whole country in early, uh, in, in early February to see the extent to which it continues to function despite this ongoing war. And you see you know, I visited major cities, including Dnipro, Kharkiv, Odessa, and Kiev, and they're all bustling. They're all full of life, despite the fact that they're experiencing nightly air raids from the Russians. And that's, they can continue functioning in large part because they have pretty good air defenses, uh, but they need ammunition. And, and if that's not forthcoming from the U.S., I think the situation could get a lot worse. And you could see more Russian breakthroughs at the front. You could see more death and destruction in Ukrainian cities. And so in a lot of ways, I really think the fate of Ukraine is not going to be determined on the battlefield in Ukraine. It's going to be determined uh, in the U.S. House of Representatives. Are we going to get the aid that Ukraine desperately needs uh, to defend itself from the Russian onslaught or not? I, I, at this point, I still don't know. Well, what is motivating the House Republicans who are blocking billions of dollars in additional aid to Ukraine? Is it all about Donald Trump? We hear different reasons put out there, like, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin is not going to lose this war and we shouldn't be wasting taxpayer dollars doing it, for example. As one, we hear about how they're, you know, finding Putin's strong sort of Christian conservative values appealing and so on. But I want to know what you think is the the real reason, the most genuine reason Mm -hmm. that House Republicans are blocking this, Max. The most genuine reason House Republicans don't want, a lot of House Republicans don't want to support Ukraine. It comes down to two words, Donald Trump. Uh, Trump, as we know, has a bizarre and mysterious affinity for Putin, and he has nothing but animus for Ukraine and for other American allies. It was pretty telling that even after Putin murdered Alexei Navalny, Trump could not bring himself to say one word condemning Putin or blaming him for Navalny's death. Instead, bizarrely, he compared himself to, to Navalny. And as we know, a few weeks ago, Trump said that he would encourage Putin to do whatever the hell he wanted. Uh, to NATO members who supposedly were not spending enough uh, for their own defense. So, uh, you know, he is completely at odds with 70 years of Republican foreign policy. Uh, He's an isolationist who harks back to the pre-Pearl Harbor Republican Party, but he is the most, Trump is the most powerful and influential person in the party. And 
And just a few days ago, during the congressional recess, you know, the House goes on recess while Ukrainians are dying. Uh, Mike Johnson, the House Speaker, pictured himself uh, with Donald Trump, who many people think is the real Speaker of the House. And Mike Johnson, who's the Speaker, is basically a non-entity. He was chosen because he's a non-entity, because he doesn't offend anybody in, in the House Republican caucus. But he basically takes his orders from Trump and his you know, some of the, the, the ultra MAGA members of the House, uh, like Marjorie Taylor Greene and others, who are threatening to topple Johnson if he <clears throat> allows a vote on aid to Ukraine. And so, you know, Johnson is, he's never been to Ukraine, shows no interest in the plight of Ukrainians, and he's basically doing Trump's bidding in the House, even though, you know, a solid majority of the House would support aid to Ukraine if it came to a floor vote. And I think the issue now is, is there a way to get around Johnson and to get it to the floor, because if that doesn't happen, it's going to be a disaster for Ukraine. It's going to be a disaster for Europe. It's going to be a disaster for the United States. Hmm. Catherine, I, I want to know your take uh, just in terms of this congressional stalemate and its impact and, and whether or not it's emboldening Putin. Uh, well, it's his dream come true. Um, and I think it's um, <clears throat> it's partly, you know, he's reaping the, the, the fruit of uh, of the seeds that he sowed um, in, in 2016, but even before that, right, with misinformation. And I think there is some fundamental misinformation here. I, I, I don't think that uh, Trump necessarily wants the information, but it's possible members in Congress and certainly uh, uh, the Republican base may may want to know that, in fact, you know, NATO is not a country club to which its members pay fees uh, into yes. some, some kitty, right? It's a commitment to pay about 2% of your GDP on the military. And most NATO members meet that. Some don't. That's true. But it's not as though we go around defending um, other NATO members and we get nothing from the alliance. In fact, we're the ones who've most recently benefited from the alliance um, in in Afghanistan, um, where, you know, our, our NATO allies came in to, to help us um, when we were attacked uh, on 9-11-2001. So um, it, this isn't just for uh, Europe. Um, the last time that there was a, a major war in Europe was World War II. NATO was created to prevent that seven, almost 75 years ago to prevent that from ever happening again. 13 million Americans died in World War II. 13 million. In World War III, it will be far more than that. Um, and so not uh, spending money to let the Ukrainians fight uh, and they don't want our our boots on the ground and our our people on the ground. They want to do it. Is folly, and it is it is uh, a risk to American national security. It is not charity. It is in our national security interests to do this. And I think there's also misunderstanding that the Europeans are somehow quote unquote not paying up uh, for their own security. The EU has just committed another $54.1 billion in flexible support uh, to be given to Ukraine over the next four years. In total, they've given $77.1 billion uh, to Ukraine. So far, we've given just under that $74 billion. So, you know, um, the, the Europeans are, in fact, stepping up, um, and it is on our interest uh, not just because we're nice and because it's morally right um, to help the Ukrainians, which it is, of course, but it is in our interest. And as someone who studied uh, uh, the Soviet Union and then Russia for 35, almost 40 years now, you know, remember that, that Putin is not a, a totalitarian dictator. There is a system underneath him. There are many people who support him. Not everyone in Russia, that is for sure. 
uh, but many do, and um, and so you know we 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 really do actually have to prepare for this continuing even beyond him. It might stop, but it might not. Um, and so the more um, we have a presidential candidate who says things like, oh, "I'm going to let him do whatever the hell he wants," the bigger threat that is to us and our own security. Yeah, I was struck by your piece, Max, uh, about the tiny country of Moldova, um, which gave us a window into just how vulnerable these nations around Ukraine feel in light of those shocking comments from Donald Trump that Putin should do whatever the hell they want, that Russia should do whatever the hell they want to any NATO country that doesn't quote unquote pay enough. And I'm wondering if you, you can say a little bit about you know, your experience in talking with the president there, but also just your thoughts on Trump's NATO comments and, and how genuine they are and what impact they could have if he were president. Well, I mean, his comments are a huge threat to our allies and, and to the United States. And I think, you know, Catherine is exactly right on what she said about how, you know, this is really Putin's 2016 intervention in our U.S. election continuing to pay dividends by promoting Donald Trump, who seems to revere, for whatever reason, Putin, and revile our allies. And, you know, when, when you, I went to, to Moldova, which is this tiny country, two and a half million people on, on the border with, with Ukraine, and in, in places like that, this is an existential threat. They see Russia as an existential threat. Uh, they, they know that if Putin wins in Ukraine, they are next. That's why uh, president Maya Sandu, the pro-European president of Moldova, is such a strong supporter of Ukraine. And she calls on the entire world to support Ukraine because she understands that what happens in Ukraine has major repercussions for Ukraine's neighbors, beginning with Moldova, which is one of the smallest and poorest. But it's it's also true with the Baltic republics, which are NATO members. It's also true of Poland, which is a NATO member. And I would add, by the way, that if you if you read about or, or listen to Tucker Carlson's disgraceful uh, simpering interview with, with, with Vladimir Putin, it was very chilling to see the extent to which Putin seems to be fixated on Poland. And he yeah. was even testifying the Nazi invasion of Poland, which is hmm. a very scary thing to hear from the leader of a nuclear armed state. So, you know, what President Sandu said to me was, you know, Putin will not stop unless he is stopped, and this is a refrain I've heard from many others in 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 in, in Russia's neighboring countries. They're all petrified of what Russia will do, and they and you know Europe is stepping up as as Catherine was just saying. They've just you know committed more than fifty billion euros to to Ukraine, but the U.S. has to step up too because Europe just does not have enough armaments production to give Ukraine the weapons it needs to defend itself, especially the artillery ammunition. So if the U.S. doesn't help, the battlefield is going to shift in Russia's favor, and that in turn will be a, a, a massive geopolitical shift that will be very much against U.S. interests. Well, we have more comments and calls coming in. Let me go to Jesse in Paris. Jesse, you're on. Hi. Uh, I, my question is about what could the U.S. do with our banking practices and future sanction packages to effectively harm versus war efforts? Uh, Jesse, thanks. And sort of related, the listener writes, there's a large amount of money, maybe 300 million that we have control over. That's Putin's. Why can't we just keep that from him mm-hmm. as punishment? I actually think it might be 300 billion. But but I think this is what you were referring to earlier, just in terms of the the assets 
the frozen yeah. Russian bank reserves um, that exist and what can be done with those. So, uh, so Catherine, go ahead. Sure. Yeah. So I, I want to say a couple of things. Well, yes. So we do have, and it's not us here alone in the United States. It's also our European allies. Yeah. We do have um, in in uh, Western institutions um, uh, three hundred billion in frozen assets. When uh, uh, Russian assets, they had six hundred and thirty billion um, dollars uh, in in uh, reserves when foreign reserves when the war began. Um, and so they've lost control over about three hundred billion. So there is a question about whether or not we could, uh, uh, as a as a as an alliance, um, take those and use them for um, Ukrainians' uh, defense. And and I should mention that you know it's not that we just give Ukraine three hundred billion dollars. If it, it isn't clear that this is this is um, you know within the boundary of of international law, and then there are all kinds of reputational effects on our own financial system. Um, in future. So this is kind of the holdup, right, whether we actually can do this. Um, the money actually comes, and this is, again, I think another misperception on the part of Americans, money actually goes um, to us, right? Uh, it, it goes to building and making um, uh, weaponry in the United States that is then sent uh, to Ukraine. Um, so I think we have to bear this in mind that actually that there's an argument here that, it, that it's good for the U.S. economy, Um you know, a lot of people are now pushing this. Uh, I think it's going to be a slow process uh, in in terms of actually getting to use any of those assets. Beyond that, of course, we we do have uh, in in terms of Mr. Putin's own personal assets. Well, if you look, he has people around the world called pockets. Uh, one of them is a is a cellist who is a childhood friend of his, uh, Radulgin, who uh, is a very very wealthy cellist. Would put Yo uh, Yo Ma to shame in in terms of how much money he has. And the question is, how does he get it, right? And so he he is one of Putin's pockets. Uh, he holds money, uh, we think, presumably for Putin. So those people have been sanctioned, um, and many of them cannot access their assets. We of course did, uh, you know, the best we could to sanction the the, the people in the in the Polar Wolf uh, penal colony, because um, an earlier caller had asked about that. Um, those those are folks who have absolutely no interest or assets in the United States or or Europe. Uh, that's symbolic. So, you know, there are things that we can do. In this new set of sanctions also, um, we, we have targeted um, a couple of different companies that uh, help to finance Russian armaments uh, building and um, also um, the Russian internal bank card system. Don't forget, we've, we've cut them off from the SWIFT system. So there, there, are, there are lots of things we can and have done. Um, the thing is that it's hard to imagine that it, Russia's is not the largest economy in the world. It's probably 20th largest now, but uh, it is still massive, right? And it, and it, we don't control all aspects of it uh, between the Europe, Europeans and the United States, but we control a lot. If there's time, I, I'm happy to point out that Mr. Putin is not an actual Christian uh, uh, warrior. Um, he I think we're coming this. up on a break here, Catherine, so let me just... Sure. Uh, Remind listeners, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're looking at the impacts of a congressional stalemate on aid for Ukraine and other aspects of the war on Ukraine by Russia, the sanctions announced today for the death of opposition leader Alexei Navalny. And we're asking you, our listeners, to weigh in. You can tell us what questions you have about where things stand. You can tell us about your reaction to the death of Navalny. You can talk about the concerns that you feel like Russia may pose to the U.S., to our elections, to other things that have been raised during this discussion at 866-733-6786 at the email address forum at kqed.org. On our social channels at KQED Forum, we're talking with Max Boot, Senior Fellow for National Security Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and a columnist for the Washington Post. And Catherine Stoner, Mossbacher Director and Senior Fellow at the Center on Democracy, Development and the Rule of Law at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. Also the author of Russia Resurrected, Its Power and Purpose in a New Global Order. And we're going to some more of your comments and calls. Laura in San Mateo County, join us. Laura, you're on. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I have followed with great admiration the um, activities of Navalny, Karamursa, other dissidents, and also the very courageous people in Ukraine. And I would like to ask the panelists if they could please give us as average citizens in America some guidance on how we can show our support for these incredible people outside of calling elected officials, which I've already done. Yeah, I can t- I can tell you how to sure. give to his. Catherine. Sure. So uh, Alexei Navalny's uh, organization is called the Anti-Corruption Foundation, and you can Google up the Anti-Corruption Foundation International, and you can donate to them online. You can also donate to um, Russian, you know, Russian media is inside Russia is is now all state controlled. But there are some very brave people who uh, have their own media outlets, um, uh, including Alexei Navalny's organization. Um, another one is called Medusa, you know, like the is it a Greek or Roman goddess with the uh, with the snakes coming out of her head. Anyway, it's M-E-D-U-Z-A. Um, you can look them up and donate to them uh, as well. There's another one called Project or Project, um, and then there are a host of uh, Ukrainian agencies. Um, if you if you want to give aid to Ukraine, um, as well as uh, the Red Cross uh, in Ukraine. Uh, Catherine, Serge called earlier to clarify, per your comment, I think about the death toll of Americans in World War II, mm-hmm. that it's roughly four hundred five thousand. You may have put that in the millions. Four hundred and five thousand. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm actually I I pulled that number from um, a from the New Orleans World War II Museum website. Mm-hmm. So that's not just that's total number of people. Total number of people. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, Max brought this up earlier with regard to 
to sort of Putin's 2016 Russian meddling effort paying dividends today. But I'm also wondering if we should be aware of or are you aware of specific concerns about Russian meddling in the 2024 election efforts that are going on? Catherine, do you oh, know? Yes. Uh, well, um, I, I, you know, I think we should we should expect misinformation um, to to be perpetuated. Uh, don't forget, you know, I think we sometimes fall back into the um, oh, there's nothing we can do, and the and the Russians are so devious, and the Chinese, and they're so good at it, and we're so bad. Don't forget, we have tools too, um, and we have things we can do too. Um, and, um, you know, we always worry about uh, them being able to cut off the Internet or now, you know, uh, there's talk of this nuclear weapon that would take out satellites that, that uh, Russia is, is um, developing. And it, it is true they're trying to develop such things, but they, they're trying to develop all kinds of terrible things um, like the Poseidon, which is a, um, um, a torpedo that they have designed that's self-guided that uh, allegedly can deliver a nuclear warhead to the, to the west coast of the United States and cause a tsunami. I mean, we uh, these these things are. They say they have them. Um, the 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 nuclear in space satellite. They they say they don't. And Putin says, of course we don't. Of course we don't. But then again, he said, of course we wouldn't invade Ukraine. And here we are, two years later. So um, we need to be wary. Uh, you know, um, and I'm I'm sure that uh, the the FBI and uh, are, are extremely aware uh, of the possibilities. And now we know their playbook a little bit better after living through 2016. But don't forget, they, they didn't do it in, in, in uh, 2020 and in 2022. We, if they did it, they those efforts were, were blunted. But um, I think we've learned a lot since then. But it's very reasonable to be mm. concerned and vigilant. Well, speaking of being... I would just add yeah, Max, could, please add. Um, you know, the in the last few days, the, the House Republicans' effort to impeach President Biden has kind of blown up on their faces yeah. because... Their chief informant, this right. fellow named Alexander Smirnov, has been in, indicted on charges of lying to the FBI. And one of the things that the special counsel revealed in the case is that he claims to have ties to Russian intelligence. Now, we don't know if that's BS or if that's on the level, but if it's on the level, that would suggest that this, uh, that this, you know, that some of these smears against President Biden trying to claim he was somehow uh, complicit in corruption in Ukraine involving his son Hunter and, and so forth. Some of that may have been a or, or has been perhaps a Russian disinformation campaign, which Republicans are, you know, uh, promoting for their own partisan political purposes. So we need to be very wary of the Russians spreading this kinds of this kind of disinformation, which we know they're very adept at, as we saw in 2016. Well, listeners are writing in. Barbara writes, will pro-Trump Republican Speaker Mike Johnson allow a vote on the military aid bill? That's the question. It has the votes, including Republican votes, but he is blocking it, empowering Putin and causing the deaths of Ukrainians. Another listener on Discord wants to highlight the Oscar-winning documentary, Navalny. It's a must-see if you haven't yet. How concerned should we be? How wary should we be? Max of the nuclear-armed anti-satellite weapon that Moscow is reportedly developing that's been making headlines. The timing is interesting. Is it part of a new emboldened Russian strategy? You know, I wouldn't freak out over it. Uh, hmm. I think part of this may be, uh, you know, Putin propaganda to try to scare the West. He's got 
Uh, he loves to unveil, you know, supposedly cutting-edge weaponry, hypersonic missiles, or, uh, you know, whatever this thing may be, uh, basically to scare the West and remind us that, you know, don't mess with Russia. But, I mean, I'm not, personally, I'm not that worried about the Russians setting off a nuclear weapon in space because, yes, it would fry our satellites, but it would also fry their satellites and China's satellites and everybody else's. It's a very blunt, indiscriminate weapon. So if they want to cause trouble, I think... There are other ways they can do that. I think, you know, we certainly need to be aware of the threat and to, you know, have defensive measures in place for our own satellites. But, you know, we shouldn't get paralyzed by whatever threats are emanating from the Kremlin, because we've seen in the last couple of years of the war in, in Ukraine that a lot of Russia's threats are pretty empty. They keep threatening to escalate if we send more weapons to Ukraine and we keep sending more weapons and they haven't escalated. In fact, one of the hidden victories that Ukraine has won has been in the Black Sea, where they've managed to sink about a third of the Russian Black Sea fleet and open up the Black Sea once again to exports of Ukrainian grain. And what have the Russians done in response? Pretty much nothing. They moved their fleet out of the way because they don't want to lose any more ships. So, you know, I think we need to be wary of, of Russia's responses for sure, but we can't be paralyzed by fear. And we need to, you know, understand that we need to deter Russia, we need to stand up to Russia, and showing weakness in the face of Russian aggression is absolutely the worst thing that we could possibly do. Catherine, help me understand, what are Russia, or what are Putin's vulnerabilities? You mentioned earlier that, you know, he's he has a system underneath him that mm -hmm. he has to keep happy to some extent. So, you know, and you're hearing Republicans, especially House Republicans, saying we can't defeat him, but, but what are his vulnerabilities? Uh, well, I, it, first of all, he's he's getting older, uh, so he's he's currently seventy one years old. To be seventy two in in October, we think he's basically healthy. Um, he probably had thyroid cancer, which, if you're going to have cancer, is apparently the one you want to have um, because it's curable. Um, uh, but the other vulnerability is exactly what Alexei Navalny represented. Right, is that he strongly suspects that there are too many people who are not with him. Um, and so he's, you know, in the last Max at the beginning of our, our discussion, pointed out how authoritarian um, Russia has become. And it's really based on much more on fear now than it was on sort of um, twisting information to to get people to uh, to to sort of believe everything uh, that the regime says. Now it's now it's based on fear because you know, uh, there there is a significant part of the population. I was just looking at um, polls recently by an organization called Russian Field for one of the classes that I teach here, and it, you know we're seeing numbers, and you have to assume that there's something called preference falsification, where people you know kind of lie about what they would answer. But we're seeing you know almost as many people saying they would prefer another candidate to Putin as Putin. Uh, in the upcoming presidential, and you can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes around elections. Um, so 51% saying they prefer Putin and 48% saying they prefer either, you know, anyone else or anything else or not sure uh, what the answer is. So so that, you know, for someone who controls all of the media messaging uh, within the country, uh, and they are on full nationalist footing right now, um, that's probably not so good, um, right? And and um, the this is one reason why, unfortunately, Navalny's mother um, is is she she reported this morning being effectively blackmailed about whether to bury him 
uh, up in in the Arctic near the col- penal colony that he was being being kept, uh, or not being given the body at all, um, because they are concerned about having you know mass demonstrations in support of him should there be uh, public access to his burial or burial site. Yeah. It's interesting, this question of whether the more repressive Putin becomes, whether that's a sign of strength or a sign of weakness, actually. Yeah, we usually in political science, we often take it as a sign of, of weakness, right? Um, and so if you think about the Arab Spring, uh, in, in, you know, does, does he have any vulnerabilities? Well, we might have said that about Mubarak in Egypt. Uh, we might have said that about the, the regime in Tunisia. Um, but, you know, sometimes people just tip. Um, they get so frustrated um, by the corruption in the system. And, and um, you know, Russia has probably had about 300,000 300, or more casualties in this war. Those are families. Um, and uh, we're seeing also some protests of, of soldiers' wives who want them back. They haven't, they've, they've served a long time on the front. So, you know, this is yeah. the, no one's invulnerable, alas, yep. and Putin is, is not immune. We mark two years of the war on Ukraine, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This happens to be a fundraising period for many public radio stations. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, this listener writes, Masha Gessen made some great points in an interview earlier this week that the best thing the U.S. can do to vanquish Putin is to throw everything we've got to the Ukrainians to let them bring a swift end to this war now. We have what they need. We should give it all to them now. This is the best way to ensure we don't end up in a wider war that gets our soldiers killed, too. We owe gratitude to Ukraine, along with military might. Let me go to Starchild in San Francisco. Starchild, you're on. Hi, Starchild, are you there? I'm yes, wondering. Can you hear me? Oh, yes, I can now. Yes. Go right Hi. ahead. Hi, sorry. Um, yeah, I'm concerned that the media and public discourse have, uh, in part, uh, led to the authoritarianism rise that we've seen lately um, by normalizing these regimes. You know, the media will talk about, like, President Putin, President Xi in China, this kind of thing, as if they're on the same footing with democratically elected leaders rather than calling them the dictators that they are. You know, Javier Malay, the new uh, libertarian leader in Argentina, is one of the only ones who's called out these dictators and regimes and and said basically, yeah, this shouldn't be normalized. Mm. You know, these people do not have legitimacy. Let's not treat them like they have legitimacy. Well, Catherine, I do want to ask you about, as you say, Putin faces an election on March 15th, and there have been calls to not even recognize Putin as the president mm-hmm. of Russia after that, right? Is mm-hmm. that is that a, a real possibility and and what impact could that have well i don't think unfortunately it doesn't uh i don't think it has huge impact um if any you know the danger first of all let me just say i agree with the caller um there are other leaders who who have have questioned uh putin's legitimacy in general but what matters is his internal legitimacy right that is really where the real threat to him comes from and he's very aware of that um, and so he's you know tried to control his own population through information and now it's swept uh, it's shifted much more to to fear and so arresting uh, people for even putting flowers uh, on um, on monuments to political prisoners this last week um, for Navalny that that is you know that's to make that's a demonstration effect um, 
So so I don't know that our saying he's not the legitimate president um, matters a, a, a lot. He's already been indicted by the International Criminal Court for essentially kidnapping hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian children into Russia. Um, and he's not allowed to therefore uh, travel to countries that are parties to the International Criminal Court, or he shouldn't be able to anyway. Um, so listen, you know, there's a, they, there's, there, to the extent any dictator is legitimate or, or illegitimate, this is what he has become. But I just want to emphasize that too often I think we have this picture of Russia uh, controlled by one man and everything he says goes. This is the largest country geographically in the world. It spans 11 time zones, has about 140 million people. Um, and they're not all political prisoners, alas. Um, it it uh, that there is some genuine support for him, um, but there there is, as I said earlier, some a, a time limit. Right? Um, pe- people don't want to fight forever, and I think one of the interesting things and the hopeful things is that we see huge differences in public opinion polls between people who are under uh, under forty four and people who are over forty four. Mm. Um, so younger people, much less supportive. They had been much more integrated into the West over the last 20 years, used to having their iPhones easily, um, mm. used to traveling, and they can't do those things anymore. And so this this is the issue. Now they're being asked to fight this war they didn't didn't want. Well, Max, any final thoughts on Starchild's point about as a journalist and columnist referring to Putin as a dictator rather than as president, for example? I try to do that, in fact, in my own columns, and I think it's an important point to stress that this is not a normal leader. He is not equivalent to President Biden or European leaders. He's a criminal, and not just a criminal, he's a war criminal, and we should never lose sight of that. Well, I want to thank you both for coming on and sharing your thoughts about what are the most important things and most significant things that the U.S. can do to counter the threat of Putin, and also just your assessment of where things stand. Max Boot is a senior fellow for National Security Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and a columnist for The Washington Post, and much of what we've talked about he has written about in depth in his columns. Catherine Soner has also written a lot about what we've discussed as well, Mossbacher Director and Senior Fellow at the Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford. Thank you both. Thank you, listeners, for your questions and comments. Thank you, Susie Britton, for producing today's segment. This Hour Forum is also produced by Caroline Smith, Mark Nieto, Tessa Paoli helped this week, and Dan Zoll. Jennifer Eng is our engagement producer. Francesca Fenzi is our digital community producer. Our engineers this week were Danny Bringer and Brendan Willard, our interns Emiko Oda and Annie Verton. Our vice president of news is Ethan Tobin-Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.